Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. God, we do thank you and praise you so much for the fact that our sin is redeemed because of Jesus Christ and not on anything that we have done or deserve. And Lord, we are held fast because of you. And so, Lord, I pray over these next few minutes as we open your word together that you would help us to understand what you have written there. Lord, instruct us, guide us, lead us, I pray, by the truth of your word, by the inspiration of your spirit. And Lord, I pray that as I share the things that you've laid on my heart, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. That that which is remembered and taken in is of you and not of me. Help us together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open it to the book of 1 Peter, the verse that Austin read this morning. By the way, Austin and Ishmael, thank you so much, guys, for reading. Great job. And uh, we're going to look at several other verses, but we're going to park there toward the end of our time. And then we'll have words on the screen. And also, if you want to follow along in your bulletin, there are notes. If you'd like to fill in notes, you can do that. Um, but a few years back, someone named Professor Jode, or someone asked Professor Jode, he was the former professor of philosophy at the University of London, and they asked him this question. They said, if you could go back in history and ask any single person in history one question, what would you ask them? And Professor Jode, a non-Christian at the time, said, I would meet Jesus Christ And I would ask him the most important question in the world. Did you or did you not rise from the dead? Did you or did you not rise from the dead? A gentleman by the name of Val Grieve um, talked about that a bit in his book, The Verdict on the Empty Tomb. Grieve was a, a lawyer in England, And he goes on to take a lawyer's perspective on the empty tomb throughout that book. But he asked that most important question, did you or did you not rise from the dead? You see, for Christians, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central element to our faith. Without the resurrection, Jesus is just an average good, well, he's above average, but he's just a good teacher. Just like Buddha or Muhammad or Gandhi or any teacher that we would have that we would adore. And there's really a lot of ground that we could cover here. But given the time that we have, I want to just lay out a couple of premises. And this one's not not in your notes. And the first one is this. Jesus really died. He really died. On Friday... In our, in our uh, Good Friday service, we uh, considered the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. You see, he was crucified because he was betrayed. He was wrongfully accused and illegally tried, and yet they put him on the cross. But beyond that, his death had some larger spiritual ramifications. In his death, he paid for the price of our sin. For the wages of sin is death, as we read in Romans 6.23. And he replaced his perfect life for our sinful lives and paid the debt that we owe. So he really died. 
But as it pertains to Easter and why we are celebrating today, the second premise, and this is where your notes pick up, is that Jesus really rose from the dead. There are all sorts of theories about Jesus. Did he really die? Did he just pass out and faint and come back to life? And there's all sorts of things, and, and, and there are resources you can think about that. But I want you to think about this. He was really dead. Unlike what Miracle Max said of Wesley, he's not saying he's mostly dead. No, he was all dead. He was dead, dead. The Roman soldiers were really good at making people dead. They had perfected tortuous means of killing people, of killing criminals, of killing their enemies, of killing Jesus. And so after he died, he laid in a tomb Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, and into Sunday morning. In Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 8, it says, On the first day of the week, that is Sunday morning, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. And taking the spices they had prepared, they found a, and they found a, a stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed at this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why are you seeking the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. You see, Luke was not an eyewitness. The guy who wrote that was not an eyewitness to all of the things of Jesus. He had researched it. He had interviewed people. And he, he wrote those words together. He put that account together to testify what other people had seen. So that we would have the benefit of understanding that the resurrection happened. But it wasn't only that. Think about this. In, in later, several years later... The Apostle Paul wrote, another, wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, and he, he said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and they, He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So here the apostle Paul is laying out the claim that Jesus rose from the grave. And at the time that he wrote that, there were still over 500 people who were alive who saw Jesus walk on earth before he ascended to heaven. So the contemporaries of Paul, when first, when first Corinthians was written, they could go and they could talk to those folks and they, you could you really saw Jesus. You could, they could verify it. And it was only 20 years after the crucifixion and resurrection. And I realized that for some, the claim of the resurrection is a big claim, and it is. And there may be all sorts of questions that we have about it, that you have about it. Some we could address here. But it may be better over a cup of coffee, over scripture, maybe a good book. And there are lots of good books that have been written about this. The Case for Christ, 
by Lee Strobel. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. The book I referenced earlier, Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb by Val Greaves. In fact, there's a, a couple of these out in the book nook. If you are, are questioning the resurrection of Jesus Christ, let me encourage you to grab one of these. If you're a follower of Christ and no one, know someone who would benefit, grab that. And consider a, a lawyer's take. Now think about this. A lawyer, some of you guys are lawyers, so you know this. A lawyer is going to work to lay down irrefutable evidence. He's going to take the evidence that's there in order to make the case. And he does that, I believe, in this book. But beyond simply wrestling with the reality of Jesus' resurrection, let's, let's spend the rest of our time beginning to consider the ramifications of the resurrection. So what? Jesus rose from the grave. Yay, Jesus! But what does the resurrection mean for us? For those who put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ and his resurrection, we have victory over the consequences of our sin. Again, Val Greaves highlights a few things in his book. He says the resurrection shows that Jesus is God. You see, the Bible records several resurrections, records several times where people are brought back to life after being all dead. But Jesus is the only one who has stayed alive. You see, after he rose from the grave, he walked on earth about 40 days, interacted with that 500 plus people, and then was ascended. So he is seated now at the right hand of the Father. But in addition to that, the resurrection means that he is judge. It means that he is, because he has conquered death and made a means for salvation for all, there will come a day when he will come back and he will ask us, what have you done with my resurrection? Have you believed? Have you entrusted yourself to me? But third, it means that forgiveness is available. Forgiveness is available. I was listening to an article the other day by Kevin DeYoung, and, and he kept asking asked this question over and over again. What will you do with your sin? There's all your activism. There's all, all these things that we like to do, all our religiosity. But what are we going to do with our sin? And what we find through Jesus Christ is that because he rose from the grave, there is forgiveness of sin for all time. But also his resurrection gives us meaning to life. Because of the resurrection we, and the hope that we have, we get to spend our lives for eternal things. Not just the acquisition of toys. Not just gaining stuff. But the last thing that Greaves notes in his book is the one that I want to focus on, and that is that it gives hope in the face of death. It gives hope in the face of death. As Peter describes it, Austin read part of this passage earlier, but let's, let's consider the whole passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's think through this. Let's, let's kind of meditate on this for a few moments. First of all, we have that Peter tells us we have a living hope because Jesus rose from the dead. We get to live in this joyful anticipation that eternal life awaits. 
And now this is not just some philosophical perspective that if we do good things here, that our legacy will live on. If we teach the teachings of Jesus here, that our, our legacy will have life that way. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about real, eternal life. It's more than just here and now. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has put eternity into man's heart. There's something in us that knows there's something beyond. All of us seem to want to know what will happen when we die. Will we return again? Will we, are we simply dead? Is that the end? Is there a, a good place where we can go from, if I have been good enough to stay out of hell or the bad place? But because eternity is in our hearts, we innately know that there is more. And because Jesus rose from the grave and is alive, we have a living hope in him that there is eternal life. But this living hope also has staying power because it's established in God. Let me just give you a little bit of perspective. Um, You see, when Peter wrote this letter, he wrote it to Jewish background believers, people who had trusted in Jesus Christ in their Jewish faith, but because of persecution, they had been spread out all over the place in in what we call the diaspora or in the dispersion. And so Peter is writing to these believers, trying to encourage them to stay strong in their faith. Now, political leaders change, and we know that we get to see that every couple of years. And he's trying to help them understand that your hope in Jesus Christ lasts far beyond whoever the next political leader is. Lasts far beyond whoever the next uh, police officer is or whoever the next person, whether they're going to be gracious or not. Because your hope is eternal. And I think we have the same thing. We get to realize that those hopes in political leaders are short-lived. Those of you guys who are students, I know, I remember when I was in elementary school, I used to look forward to that next teacher. Was I going to get that cool teacher or was I going to get the not so cool teacher, right? And, and there, but there are some of us, we have to recognize that that is a hope that we have. But what happens if that teacher retires or moves away? Oh, man, hope's dashed. Or what about that sports team you've been so longing to be a part of? And then you make the team only to realize, wow, there's some huge sacrifices that have to be made. Was my realized hope worth it? But because Jesus has been raised from the dead, our hope for eternal life is alive. Our hope is not dependent on circumstances here and now. But not only do we have this living hope, Peter tells us that we have an inheritance. We have an inheritance. Of course, an inheritance is typically, we think of that as the leftovers from what our parents or grandparents didn't use in their lifetime, right? In fact, I've seen many RVs with the bumper sticker that says, we are spending our children's inheritance, right? Now, as it relates to this passage, we're not not talking about the inheritance that is waiting for you when your parents or grandparents pass on. But we're talking about, and Peter is talking about, an inheritance that you will receive when you depart from this life or when Jesus returns. So rather than being leftovers, your inheritance in Christ is fully funded for eternity because Jesus rose from the grave. And not only is is this inheritance fully and even eternally funded, it won't fade with inflation. Aren't we glad for that? We're feeling that right now. Or the fluctuation in the stock market. Because it's not based on anything here. 
It's based in eternal things. But let's think about this in a different way. Have you ever left something outside for a while? I, I borrowed something from Vern a little while ago, and he, he told me it had been left out for a really long time. It was a very good thing because it, was a, it didn't rust. But think about this. If, we were to, if you were to leave your bike or, or toys or, or table outside, what tends to happen to it? You see, these things can get broken. Last year, our, our patio table just broke out of the blue. I was removing the, the umbrella from it, and all of a sudden it shattered all over the patio. It had just been worn out from being outside too long. But kids, you know what happens. If you leave your bicycle outside, the rain and the snow gets on it, and then the chain doesn't work, and your dad or mom has to put oil in there, and it just never works right. We took our bikes to Texas a couple years ago, and Zoe had a brand new bike. And just that travel from here to Texas gunked up her chain like you wouldn't believe, all because it was left outside. It got broken. But also, when we leave things outside, they get dirty. Rain and snow, wind, pollen, dust, and other things land on it. It gets dirty and messed up. But also, these things will decay. Metal things get rust in them. Bugs come along and eat cloth or wooden things. Things just don't last. Things left on their own fade away. But Peter tells us that we have an inheritance in Jesus Christ that cannot be destroyed. Some things in life simply can be destroyed. Money can be stolen. Cars can be totaled. Toys can be stepped on or chewed up by your dog or lost. But our inheritance, our eternal inheritance cannot be destroyed. Peter says it is imperishable. There's nothing that Satan or world conflicts, or even that bully at school can do to impact your eternal inheritance. But not only will it not be destroyed, this is an inheritance that cannot be defiled. There is no stain of sin messing up this perfect eternal inheritance. For Jesus took our sin on himself that we might be made right with God. One of my favorite Bible verses is, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we enter into eternity, it is by Christ's righteousness and not ours. I'm so grateful because I don't know about you, I can't go a day without screwing up my righteousness. I, I might be right in my own eyes, but by God's standard I have fallen far short. And this doesn't mean that because we're getting in on Christ's righteousness that we should live however we want. I think it means that no matter how far, how far short we fall, we are sealed. We are secure in Him. When I was a kid, I used to love... They, they had these things called Cracker Jacks. Anybody remember Cracker Jacks, right? Sometimes there's a little toy inside of you. I, I always liked the toy more than the, that candy. Because it's not candy, it's popcorn. But one of the toys that I really loved to get, whether it was in Cracker Jacks or something else, was those cellophane red decoder things. You know what I'm talking about? So you have, there's a code on a, message, on a piece of paper and it says something. And then you put the red cellophane over top of it and it reveals something different. Something that you couldn't see without that. 
And I wish I had a cool way of illustrating this. But I I want us to understand, see, as I think about this and the inheritance that we have, part of the reason why our inheritance cannot be defiled is because of the blood of Jesus. It's as though if, if on my life there was a piece of paper that said, sinner, unworthy, defiled by sin. But because of Jesus' righteousness, the cellophane, the blood of his life is over top of mine. And instead of reading all those things, my life reads, and if you're a follower of Christ, your life reads, redeemed, made righteous in Jesus, holy because of Jesus, child of God. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, if you have trusted in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, then we have an inheritance that cannot be destroyed. It cannot be defiled. And thirdly, Peter tells us it cannot decay. As we mentioned before, financial inheritances can be eroded or eaten away by inflation or by spending. Toys left outside can be eaten away by the elements. But our inheritance of eternal life will not fade. It will never diminish. It is eternal. But Peter tells us that it is also kept safe. That eternal inheritance is Secure. It is kept in heaven for you. And there's a couple of ways that we can think about that phrase kept. One is guarded or kept safe, and it carries with it the idea of being under lock and key. If you've ever watched the Harry Potter movies or read about, read the Harry Potter books, then you know that the best place to keep your gold is in Gringotts. Right, Mia? Is that the best way? Okay. So in Gringas, it's, it's this bank that is magically sealed. And so you can't get in there and, and you have to make sure that you know all the right things to be able to get your stuff. And yet even Gringas, we found in the book, had stuff stolen out of it multiple times. Our banks, as much as we would love to see them be secure, they're not. But one of the things that... Peter tells us is that our eternal inheritance is kept safe. There is there's no way for people to use magical powers or devious schemes to break into that which is kept in heaven for you. But there's another thing I think is important for us to recognize that not only is it kept safe, is it guarded, but that that word, that phrase can be translated as reserved. That is it is reserved. That inheritance has your name on it. If you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, your name is there. Your place is waiting for you. There is a place for Jim and Annabelle. There's a place for Bill. There's a place for Pete and Jackie, for Michael and Francis, for Gabriel, Grace, Jordan, Zach, Rachel, Chris, Ned, Peggy, Brian, Zoe, Kate, Lauren, Ethan, Dan, Michelle, Bobby. And we could go on and on and on and read the names of people I believe are written on in, in heaven, reserved, a place reserved for you. But ultimately, it's not up to me. It's up to Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. 
So I want to ask you, have you responded to his call for salvation? Is there a reservation in heaven for you? Peter says, he continues by saying, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And all of this Christ has purchased by his resurrection, by his atoning sacrifice. We've not earned it. We've not done enough to get it. But there's one final thing that Peter tells us that we can learn about this inheritance that we have through Jesus Christ. And that is that we are secure. We are secure. First Peter 1.5 says, You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So let me ask you, whose power is guarding us? Whose power does Peter tell us is guarding us? God's power. Whose power? God's power. It's not your pastor or elders. We have a role to play in teaching and caring for you here, but it's not our power that's going to keep you secure and safe. It's not your parents. They too have a role to play. They're instructed to teach you and to train you up in the ways of the Lord. But it's not their power guarding you. It's not your Sunday school teachers, as cool as they are, with all the signs and rocks and cookies that they like to give us. They have a role to play. And thankfully, it is not your feelings or my feelings that is keeping us secure. Because feelings can be so fickle. And thankfully, our salvation is not dependent on how we feel, but as we've already sung, on Christ's finished work on the cross. We are secure, guarded by God's power. That word guarded could also be translated garrisoned, as in a military garrison. Imagine your eternal security is under, under the protection of God's holy army. Your eternity is secure. We don't have to worry about someone taking away our spiritual life. Once we've received this salvation, we are sealed and secure. We're simply waiting for the realization of that eternity. So let me close with a couple of thoughts real briefly. Beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope that you're encouraged by some of what Jesus' resurrection means for you. But I realize and, and I realize, too, I've mentioned this book a few times, and I, I, it is an excellent read. I, it took me two partial days to read it, and you could really probably read it in an hour if you're a way better reader than I am. Actually, not even way better, if you're just marginally, if you have p- more patience than I do. But if you're not yet a follower of Christ, or if you know someone who would benefit from a lawyer's perspective, like I said, let me encourage you to pick it up. But in his book, he closes with the story. Then he, he tells a story about a guy named George Wilson. I don't remember when, he doesn't mention when Wilson lived, but George Wilson decided to rob a mail truck. And in the process, he killed the driver. He was captured, he was arrested, he was tried, he was convicted, he was sentenced to death. And as most presidents do in the waning days of their presidency, the president at that time decided for whatever reason to pardon Mr. Wilson. So the people came to free him, and Mr. Wilson said, I don't want to be free. I want you to take my life. 
And so they went back and forth. But you've been pardoned. No, I don't want to be pardoned. You've been pardoned. I don't want it. And so it went back and forth. It ended up in the courts. ended up at the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court finally decided that in order for a pardon to be fully executed, that's probably the wrong word to use, but as in order for a pardon to be fully, fully comprehended, it has to be given. The president gave the pardon, but it also has to be received. And Mr. Wilson refused to receive this pardon. So he was put back in prison and his sentence was carried out. And I tell you that because, friend, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I want to encourage you to do your homework. Consider all that Jesus did. Consider the full ramifications of his life, death and resurrection. Consider the evidence. And all the while, we who are, are part of the family of God are going to be praying that God will give you faith to believe. But just like Mr. Wilson couldn't be forced to take that pardon, we cannot force you to believe. That is something God has to give you. His free gift of salvation is something you have to receive. The resurrection is a big deal. And I believe that the evidence would stand up in a court of law question is, will you receive it? Let me just ask you, I don't do this often. Let me ask you just to close your eyes. I want to just allow you to hear me. I know George and some other guys are talking and that's fine. I'm glad they're here. I want you just to hear me just for a brief moment. Because some people might wonder, what does it mean to accept, to receive this salvation. What could happen by saying a prayer like this? And if you feel like God is moving in your heart, then you can say this prayer in the, in the quietness of your mind and your heart. But speaking to Jesus, you might say something like this. Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that my sin prevents me from having eternal life and from receiving this living hope and inheritance that we've been talking about. But I also know that you died on the cross for my sins. So thank you. Please forgive me of my sins. And I joyfully receive your free gift and salvation. I receive your pardon that you purchased for me on the cross. And proved in the resurrection. Help me as I grow in my unbelief. Now I want to encourage you. A prayer like that doesn't save you. Ultimately, Jesus saves you. But a prayer like that is simply a marker to say, now I believe. So I want to encourage you, if you prayed a prayer like that today, before we leave, talk to someone who's next to you. Or talk to me in the back. But let's, let's close our time in prayer together. God, we do thank you so much for all that we have in the resurrection. Forgiveness of sins a purposeful and meaningful life, a hope for eternity. And Lord, we thank you that that life that we have through Jesus Christ, that hope that we have, that inheritance is something that cannot be diminished by time. It cannot be destroyed or corrupted. It is secure. So Lord, we look forward to the day when we 
will realize, we will see that inheritance realized when we get to meet with you face to face. Lord, help us to persevere, to walk faithfully before you every day that you allow us to live, rejoicing in the life that we have because of the resurrection. It's in our Savior's name, Jesus Christ, that we ask these things. Amen.